Oh, you wanted me to amputate the right arm, yeah. not the left arm. Study when the cat's section. at study that's, section, that's the mice will play. Yeah. Exactly. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we explore the murky, mysterious world of grant review and wonder why the reviewers can't agree. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 90. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Josh. Welcome back. It's been a little while. 90 episodes. That's a lot. That is a lot of episodes. Yeah, it has been a while. We're a little bit delayed for this episode. We've been trying to put one out every two weeks. And for the folks keeping score at home, it's been a little bit longer than two weeks since the last episode. Life has been a little crazy, though. This is your busy time of year. Yeah, this is a busy time at work. We're here, though, and we've got a good one, I think. I'm excited yeah. to get into it. I'm very excited. We're going to talk about some interesting research that has to do with something that's pretty important to a lot of scientists. Getting money, money, money. money. Uh, but first, on to some important things, the beer. All right, Dan, so are you aware of what's coming up this weekend? We are approaching St. Patrick's Day in the U.S. and probably several other places. Yeah, St. Patrick's Day, I have to admit, is... that a is, worldwide holiday? Uh, I don't know. I was going to say... Something uh, that weird Americans do. Well, St. Patrick's Day is a holiday I don't know much about, to be quite honest. Like, we do it every year, and people wear green and pinch you, but I have no idea why we celebrate it. Shamrocks are important. So what we're having is Murphy's... Imported stout, draft style. Uh, what does draft style mean? Uh, to me, that's like a binary thing. Either the beer is on draft or well, it's I not think, on I draft. I think that's that floaty thing that you saw when you opened it up. <laughs> okay. there's, there's a floater inside the can. Yeah, I got to try to explain this. I opened the can and I thought it was a weird bubble. Like, can you see this? Yeah. Uh, yeah it looks it's, like... It's definitely if I, a piece of plastic. If I can explain this, it looks like an olive made out of polypropylene. Okay. That floats to the top. So, all right, I'm going to pour this. I guess. Yeah, put it in your cup first. Make sure it's. So, I think Guinness has one of these plastic things, right? In the. What's it, this for? It's the nitrogen capsule, I believe. And so that's what nitrogenates the beer when you open it. The nitrogen capsule? The like rocket? That's where the, that's the, where nitrogen the nitrogen rocket. is stored? Or it, I, I don't understand. There's some kind of magic or science involved, and that capsule uh, makes that very fine foam at the top when you open the beer, as <laughs> if it came from a draft. Can you hear this? Here's the. Yeah, you're losing volume of beer for that thing. Yeah, I know. I wonder if that's why. Actually, this is not a full pint. This is a tall can, but there's only 14.9 fluid ounces, so I can only believe that the plastic olive takes up 1.1 ounce. Okay, I took the plunge, decided to take a sip. This is warmer than I would normally drink a beer, but I know you're trying to strive for the accuracy of the 45-degree pull. It is a little warm. It's warmer than 45, don't you think? <laughs> well, I just bought it from the store. <laughs> Celsius or Fahrenheit? <laughs> uh, this is a little bit room temperature. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> <laughs> Drinking your 45 degree Celsius beer is a very unpleasant experience. It's a little thin. It is, but I think that's, that's part of the style. So I have to admit, I'm not a Guinness fan. Guinness is not a beer that I enjoy. There's a, a good amount of burnt bitterness, which I like, um, in the in the dark stout flavor. No, not not loving it. Maybe okay. if it were colder, you'd feel better. Maybe so. Well, you are uh, dropping a couple of ice cubes, and you are really ready to. I go. have a couple more in the fridge. Maybe I'll try it a little colder later. Um, I do want to say this is an Irish beer, Murphy's. This is brewed in Cork, Ireland, and I did a little research on this and. 
while many of us have had Guinness, Dan, I know you've had a number of of Guinnesses. Um, have you had the Murphys before? I think I have, yeah. Well, it turns out Murphys is made by Heineken Corporation, which you've heard of. I have, yeah. And and it turns out back in the 80s and 90s, Heineken did a big marketing push in the United States to try to cut into Guinness's market share of the stout uh, market in the U.S., but it didn't really catch on, and they stopped. And now we know why. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to the news. Can't win them all, right? Ninety. We've got 90 beers on the show. They can't yeah. all be good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, tell people where we will be in a few weeks, Josh. So we will be in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt in just a couple of weeks, and we're really excited. Some graduate students from the Biomedical Engineering Graduate Student Association have invited us out to give a talk and do a live recording of the show. So... We're pretty excited. This is our first time ever taking the show on the road. Do what we do. Yeah, it'll be interesting with a live audience. We've never tried that before, um, but I'm excited about it, and it gives us a chance to meet some of the the people who listen to the show, people who are in graduate school, and, and we're going to talk about a lot of the things we talk about on the show about uh, what makes graduate school difficult, but also uh, the tips and tricks we've learned either through our experience or through talking with you all about how to make that a little bit better. Uh, and so I think it's going to be a positive hopeful uh, get-together, and, and hopefully we'll get to meet some students and some organizations on campus that are pushing the boundaries, trying some new things, and we can interview them for the show. That's exactly right. So if you're at Vanderbilt especially or in the Nashville area and you want to want to check it out, we'll be on campus on Thursday, April the 5th, sometime in the afternoon, 4 p.m., I think. Something like that. Yeah, we'll see you there. And it looks, Josh, like we have a new Patreon patron. We do. I wanted to say special thanks to Delaney for supporting the show by becoming a Patreon patron. So cheers. Thanks, Delaney. And we will see you in the Slack channel dedicated to our, our Patreon patrons where we chat about science and grad school and scientific training and whatever else happens. One thing that I did discover today that I tweeted about, you can now listen to the latest episode of Hello PhD by asking Alexa to play it. You should just say it out loud. Oh, wait, if people are listening to it, out loud, then they already have it on Alexa, theoretically, right? You're, we're not going to hijack their Alexa and make it play right now, can we? Alexa, play the Hello PhD podcast. Josh, <laughs> are you ready for science in the news? I'm ready. Okay, Josh, I have three related sciences uh, that come from the news. The local hospital in uh, Chapel Hill is run by UNC, and it is a teaching hospital. You have you spent some time there, haven't you? Um, yeah, I go to the cafeteria there pretty often. Cafeteria <laughs> there. You you had uh, kids there. I did. Yeah, I had the chance mm-hmm. when when my wife was pregnant the first time. We were thinking about going there, and we said, you know what, teaching hospital, and the baby was going to be born in August. We're like, we better just avoid it because you know why, right? That's when all the new residents start is in July. Mm, yeah, all the newbies. So there's this, I don't know if you, you've experienced this, but there's a notion in the world, and it's not just in the United States, but also other parts of the world, where there's a fear that when these new medical residents start their training at the hospital, that the rate of mortalities increases or the number of deaths goes up, and you should just stay away from there for the month of August or July, depending on what country you're in. Is that a real fear that people have? It is. It is a real fear. There's a Snopes.com page about it. I have never thought about that. And better yet, there are there are research papers describing it. So the pa- first paper I wanted to bring you today was a study by, done by Min Hua Jen at the Imperial College in London. The title of their paper was Early in Hospital Mortality Following Trainees Doctors' First Day at Work. 
And so the setup here is in London and England, new residents start in the first week of August. They begin the paper by noting that people commonly believe early August is an unsafe period to be admitted to the hospital because of that, uh, that first Wednesday start date for those residents. In the U.S., it's called the July phenomenon, and there are papers about it in the U.S. But they cite this previous work where no one found an increase in the number of deaths in England around that time, but those studies didn't have mortality rates. So it's possible that the number of deaths was similar or even lower, but fewer people just happened to be admitted during that first week of August. And so maybe they weren't measuring uh, the right thing to find those those new doctors killing patients. Especially if this is a well-known phenomenon like you like you claim, people are staying away Yeah, it, it somehow factored into our decision now. I have no idea why, but um, that, that was something that was in the back of our minds when we were uh, thinking about going to the ho- a teaching hospital around that time of year. That's something you actually thought about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I never didn't even know that. Things I should have worried about. Things you should have known, yeah. So the cool thing about England is the National Health Service uh, collects a lot of data, and they have a data set known as the Hospital Episode Statistics, with 14 million records every year covering inpatient and day case activity uh, in the NHS group of hospitals. Um, So they have data, it collects 300 different fields on each admission. So it's, you know, demographic data like age and gender, but also the length of the stay. They have 14 different fields to cover the diagnosis of the patient, 12 about the operation, things like that. So there's this very rich data set over the last 15, 20 years about all the patients that come through the English health system. So um, when you have a data set that big, you can actually maybe ask a question about, is the mortality rate higher or lower in the week prior to August 1st and in the week after August 1st? And that's exactly what they did. Interesting. What'd they find? So they divided up into those two cohorts, um, and they only compared hospitals that actually train doctors. Of course, you'd have to remove all the data that said from hospitals that don't actually train doctors. And they decided, so, so they took the week before August 1st and the week after August 1st, and they said if a patient had died in the hospital in the week following uh, their admission, then they counted that as a death. Otherwise, they presumed that they survived. So we're only looking for like patients that, that came to the hospital specifically patients that came under emergency settings or unscheduled to avoid the the cases where people maybe just didn't schedule or they had planned to be there. Um, And what they found was an overall small, but what they considered significant 6% higher odds of death for all patients and a statistically significant 8% higher odds of death for medical patients in the week following the first Wednesday in August versus the week before the last weekend week in July. So, I would call this tiny 6% and 8%. Um, and they had to adjust for a lot of different factors to pair these cases and to make sure that they were removing statistical correlates that didn't make a difference. But they did find an increase in the number of deaths in that first week. Now, how do you feel, Josh? Uh, well, I'm not going to necessarily say that I'm still quaking in, in fear if I have to go to the hospital the first week of August. But I would also say that when talking about odds of death, a 6 or 8% increase seems kind of important. Yeah, it's one of those things where maybe your odds of death were 1% when you go to the hospital for an emergency situation, and now it's 6% higher. Six, You have a 6% increase in the 1% rate, which is different. Okay, okay. So it's not increasing my 
chance of death from 1% to 7%. I don't think so, no. It's a 6% more likely uh, odds of death. If you have an emergency situation and you're going to the hospital for it, it's not like you're going to say to yourself, well, let me drive to the next town over so I can get to a place that doesn't have teaching staff, right? Well, I think I was a little bit disappointed that they didn't use as a comparison group a non-teaching hospital because it seems like that would have been a a they really did. good control. They did, and they looked at whether the non-teaching hospitals had the same increase, and they did not. Hmm. But there may be other factors about non-teaching hospitals. You know, it's tough to, to remove every possible correlation, but they did uh, attempt to remove all of those things. Um, so there was a, a 2010 study in the United States done, and I thought this one was interesting. It was related to the same thing. I think the assumption is that these new doctors, these new surgeons are just dropping scalpels into people's body cavities and, you know... Whatever you assume, it's just this like which organ is this? hand? And, yeah. <laughs> oh, I wasn't supposed to take that out. Oops. Oh, you wanted me to amputate the right arm, yeah. not the left arm. So this 2010 paper done by uh, Phillips and Barker in the Journal of uh, Internal Medicine, which I'll post a link to in the show notes, found that there was a 10% increase in deaths due to medical uh, medication errors. So with this new staff coming on, perhaps the handoff between the patient and the resident or when residents are changing out over the course of a day or something, now there are more errors with the patient getting the wrong medication. And so they were able to go through death records and find out that there was this 10% increase in July in the United States in teaching hospitals for medication error deaths. So it's not, it is... (laughs) It is about perhaps being new, just training, but it's not about like I severed the wrong pancreas. But it's still an important consideration. I mean, it is. Yeah, a, that seems to be in the ballpark of the findings from the the London study. Yep, I, I think that's right. And so th- this uh, this 2010 paper was attempting to describe how uh, this phenomenon may have occurred. And my last paper, Josh, I will keep this one very short, uh, just because this one made I think CNN and and all of the other major newspapers. There was a paper out last week in the Journal of the American Heart Association that found that the mortality rates were slightly lower for people, cardiac patients who had been hospitalized for heart attacks, when their cardiologists were out of town attending cardiology meetings. So put another way, if you have a heart attack and your cardiologist is out of town, you have a better chance of surviving. But not on vacation if they're out of town. Well, so so, they, <laughs> so why, why did they do that study? They, That's they such picked, a specific... They picked that because they could find statistics for when a whole group of doctors were away. So you could look mm. at a specific period of time. There's a, a international cardiology conference. I guess I would imagine their hypothesis was probably the opposite, right? That, oh, these yeah. cardiologists are all out of town. There's probably going to be an increase in the mortality rate for yeah, cardiac so, deaths. So you could, you could publish a paper that says these cardiology meetings are killing people, but that's not what they found. So I wonder if this is, is like, or the whole reason medical professionals wash their hands was it was in the, the birthing units and the doctors weren't, you know, the, the babies being delivered by the doctors, they weren't washing their hands and all the babies died, but then all the babies being delivered by nurses and midwives were living because they were actually washing their hands. And <laughs> Can you learn from the positive deviance? Yeah. It's kind of like when you don't want your PI in the lab doing experiments, you know, let's just leave this to the nurses who know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's keep the doctors out of here. That's exactly right. My takeaway from this is, we need to train doctors and we need them to have training that is in the real world. And these small increases in uh, mortality are worth investigating and it's worth putting practices in place that would minimize or eliminate them. But imagine what kind of situation we would be in in terms of mortality if doctors 
got their degree and went to work, right? This is, this is part of their training. And uh, I have a different view on, on what a training hospital means and what it means for all of us in our community. Yeah, that is absolutely true and interesting. And I'd be curious to know if any of our listeners have any, any opinions on this study or maybe if you are a doctor or work in a clinical setting, what's, what are your thoughts on this study? Is this something people talk about where you are? All right, Dan, thanks for that. Are you ready to move into our topic? Let's do it. All right, Dan, you've probably heard the term publish or perish. I have heard it many times. Yeah, I think... One, I didn't publish that much, and I'm still here, Josh. You're still here. So, goes to show them. But I'm, I would, not, I'm not in the business anymore, so perhaps that is, is a fair euphemism, yeah. Uh, but I wonder, beyond, beyond publishing, maybe an even more critical thing for the modern-day scientists to do is to acquire funding for their research. Yeah, I, we like to think that scientists are not money-motivated, but when it comes to be grant time, I have a different opinion. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have money to do your study... It's kind of hard to do your study, right? Yeah, well, it costs so much money. I mean, the the cost of reagents, I think, if you've ever gotten to look at the books in your lab, uh, you will be totally amazed. I remember being a naive grad student, and one day we had the sit-down conversation with the PI about, okay, your bill at the tissue culture facility was $15,000 this month. And we said, what? We just had no idea. Yeah, I can actually remember, I think it was within my first week or two in my thesis lab, and I accidentally left a tube of some kind of enzyme sitting out on my bench overnight, forgot to put it back in the, the minus 20 freezer, and I think we ended up having to throw it out and realized later, you know, that little tube of just a few microliters was several hundred dollars. Yeah, it's totally insane. And when we started 100 years ago, there was a huge boom in grant funding, and so it felt like everybody had two RO1 grants. But over the years, funding from the NIH has increased very slowly, but the number of applications has grown up. And so I think over time, the success rate, the number of people that are able to successfully file and receive a grant has gone down, uh, the rate of, of those people getting grants. So very high stakes for your lab staying open or closing based on this process of grant review, which is what we're going to talk about today. But I think most people have no idea what a grant review looks like. Yeah, that's true, Dan. Um, I've never done it. Well, and and to reemphasize what you said, I mean, in some cases, at some in some fields and in some institutes, the funding rate can really be as low as ten percent of grants that are coming in are actually being funded. And that's the doors stay open and the employees stay employed, or the or they don't. Yeah, yeah, and and the that's, tenure track faculty sticks around, but to do what? Well, and that's a good point, Dan, because you know we we said that. You know, funding was critical for for scientific questions to be answered and projects to be done. But beyond that, it also means for technicians to have jobs and graduate students to be able to join labs. And there's this whole support structure, there's an economy, economy there. yep. yeah, that goes along with that. Um, so anyway, the way grants are funded, though, is typically through this grant peer review process. And and what this process is meant to do is is to pick out the the studies that really are worth funding, the ones that hold the most promise. And with so many applications, Dan, you know, certainly I imagine there are some some really bad studies that either are not designed well and have a very low chance of of succeeding or really based on are based on poor assumptions. But in reality, Dan, a lot of them, a lot of what grant reviewers are trying to do is differentiate between good and great applications. So what the guts of a grant are basically here's my plan for research for the next five years. What does that look like? 
Yeah, I think it depends on on the type of grant you're you're applying for, but oftentimes a, a timeline is required. Um, and yeah, a lot of these these grant timelines are you know three to five years. Okay, so here are the questions we want to ask. Here's how we're going to approach the problem. Here's some preliminary data. What else goes in there? A lot of grant reviewers want to actually see that you have thought out what the major caveats and potential pitfalls are and what you would do about those, how you would address those. Uh, So you're not just going into your project with blind optimism. But this is a cumbersome process. I mean, this is taking weeks of time to put a grant together. Oh, months. Yeah. Months. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing that I actually really like about the way grant review is typically done in the United States, um, especially for funders like the NSF and the NIH um, specifically, is this peer review process, similar to reviewing papers, but, you know, the people who are making funding decisions, even though that money comes from the federal government, it's not political types who are making the decision, but actually for each institute, uh, each topic of research that, that's being funded, it actually is a group of peers of scientists who are knowledgeable in that field who are assessing these grants. Okay, so let's let's unpack it a, little, a minute because I don't think that every graduate student or postdoc has probably been through this process. Um, I package up my grant, I work for months on it, I ship it off somewhere. What happens to it between me sending it away and them telling me I did or didn't get money? Yeah, so if we talk about the NIH, then we're talking, there's a, there's a two-stage review process. So in the first stage, there will be a number of reviewers, and again, these are peer reviewers, reviewers who are knowledgeable in the research area that, that you are um, seeking funding for. And two to five reviewers are going to individually evaluate each of the submitted grant applications. And what they'll do is they will read these in depth and then assign a preliminary rating. And within IH's case, we'll assign a score based on a reverse nine-point scale, where one is good, one is exceptional, actually, and nine is poor. And, and then what they'll do is they'll write a critique that, that fleshes out a description of the application's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, so typically there'll be three reviewers for each application, a primary, secondary, and tertiary, ranked in the order of relevance of their expertise. But really it's this primary reviewer um, who's the one that's going to give this initial preliminary score and then present that grant to the second stage, which is this um, which is this study section. So yeah, I've heard of study section. That's a thing. Your mm-hmm. PI goes off for a week. <laughs> Where did they go? <laughs> yeah, they come back and they were at study section. When the cat's section. at that's study the, section, the you, mice will play. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so at the study section, the reviewers um, who are assigned these grants, uh, they convene at a study section meeting. And what they do is they discuss all the applications that were received and that received preliminary ratings. And the top half of all these are going to be evaluated, but uh, not everyone will read every grant. There's just that's just not feasible because these grants They're are huge, pretty long. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, they have been made a little bit shorter uh, in page limits in recent years. Um, however, the primary reviewer will present the applications they reviewed and their score and their opinions. After that happens, reviewers will discuss the applications, and then a final rating will be assigned to the application, um, and all these final ratings from all the members will be averaged into what's called a final priority score. Quote, unquote. Yeah, and this is kind of like your final score. Um, And then, so what's going to happen, I guess this is sort of a third stage, really, there are these advisory councils for NIH, and what they're going to do is they're going to see all these scores for all the grants that went into each of those sections, and... Basically, they'll make funding recommend, recommendations, but but really, what happens is once these scores are ranked, um, they're not necessarily they're not necessarily saying these are the ones we think should be funded or not funded. There's sort of this rank order 
right? And so at some point, okay, well, here's how much money we have. So here's where we're going to draw the line. We can fund down to this. Down to number 17 or 28 or whatever the number happens to be based on the money. Exactly. And, you know, the reality is the compression of scores, let's say maybe in the top 20%, could be, uh, it could be pretty compressed. They could all not much separate number one from number 20. However, there's only enough money to get you down to... You have to stop somewhere, Number basically. eight yeah. or nine, right? Yeah. And so, so, so you could be nearly identical to the grant that was ranked one above you, mm-hmm. but you don't get money and they do, and it's, it's winner takes all, basically. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so that's a tough system. Yeah, it, no, it can be. And so, but anyway, this is, this is the system uh, by which the vast majority of all NIH funding uh, is divvied up, which represents the... <laughs> Hundreds of millions of dollars. At least. At least, yeah. Billions. Yeah, big numbers. Okay. okay. Lots of uh, zeros. Yeah. And, and so anyway, I think like a lot of things, Dan, this process is fundamental to the way science happens in the United States. However, even though this is all about science and research, we haven't necessarily studied the actual mechanisms uh, with which we operate, with which this uh, enterprise operates. Yeah, there seems to be uh, an issue here, which is you've got people doing the assessment, and they're not assessing based on a common set of values necessarily. There's no rubric that says um, an actin cross-linking protein proposal should have these five criteria, check, check, check. Let's give them money. This is kind of a, uh, this one is a, a seven in terms of its overall score. And then we discuss it and then you know, you give your opinion even though you haven't read the grant fully all the way through, right? Yeah, well, it's, I think... It's kind of a weird process. I think the process rests on some assumptions that maybe were previously untested that actually the study we're going to talk about today sought to to test. And that is that a group of informed reviewers based on a certain set of criteria or a rubric could similarly assess grants. So if you and I were both experts in the same field we could come to a similar conclusion, a similar score on a grant application that we reviewed. Right. You would want some consistency. If, if you were out sick one day, we would want the same answer from your replacement. That's right. So a study came out about a week or two ago in PNAS, and it was entitled Low Agreement Among Reviewers Evaluating the Same NIH Grant Applications. And this was a study by some researchers at the University of Wisconsin. And what they did was they recreated the NIH grant review process as closely as they could. And they examined 83 ratings of grants from 43 different reviewers who reviewed 25 different grant applications. Okay, so each application was reviewed in detail between two and four reviewers. So this would be simulating that primary reviewer setup. And what they found was that there was no agreement among reviewers with regard to quality of the grant application. Okay, wait, 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 wait. No agreement among the reviewers with regard to the quality. So those reviewers didn't think the same papers were good. That's right. The same grants were good. That's right. And so, so what the results showed was that different reviewers who were assigning these preliminary rating scores, as well as listing a number of strengths and weaknesses in kind of a qualitative assessment of the grants, these varied significantly from person to person as they were reviewing the same grants. Okay. And I thought this was interesting. They, they used a few different statistical models, but one of the ones they used found, and this is a quote, that variability in the ratings for different applications was smaller than the variability in ratings for the same application. So these results show that multiple ratings for the same application were just as similar as ratings for different applications. 
basically I could have rolled some dice and gotten a similar random distribution for an individual application or a, a group of them. Yeah, exactly. So I shouldn't waste everybody's time at the study section. What was the reaction to this in the scientific community? Did people see this paper? Yeah, there's. I mean, this was in PNAS, so this is pretty high profile. This is a journal that scientists read. And I've seen a lot of, <laughs> this has raised a lot of, uh, this has got a lot of attention, I guess, among researchers. And, and a couple other things I want to point out about this study um, that I thought were interesting was, to me, this goes beyond just looking at grant review, but, you know, I think a lot about graduate admissions, which operates under a similar process. You know, there's a bunch of applications. We assign a couple primary people to review each one, and then they present that to the group, and then they Serious come up with parallels, a, yeah. Yeah, definite parallels. So a thing that we talk a lot about, which also is true in grant review, is we want to try to give reviewers very similar instructions about how they review the grants, because we actually would like consistency from reviewer to reviewer. And so in in this paper, all the reviewers were given identical instructions on how they were supposed to score the applications and also how they were supposed to format these qualitative written critiques. However, they found that there was no agreement in how different faculty reviewers translated Um, a number of strengths and weaknesses listed into a consistent numerical rating. So you might have given a grant uh, three strengths and five weaknesses, and I also gave a grant three strengths and five weaknesses, uh, but we gave them vastly different scores. So you gave it a nine poor and I gave it a two pretty good. That's right. Or whatever. That's right. And so, so a conclusion from this was, it appeared that the outcome of the grant review depended more on the reviewer to whom the grant was assigned than the research proposed in the grant. That is wild. That is wild. Um, I did want to point out, Dan, one, one key caveat to the study. So all of the grants that were used in this study were actual NIH grants that were funded initially or were funded after some revisions by the NIH. Um, however, one interesting comparison the authors made was they wanted to know whether the reviewers in this study agreed with the original NIH reviewers who decided on the application outcome during its first submission to NIH. And what they found was that the reviewers in this study rated unfunded, these were the initially unfunded applications, just as positively as they did the funded applications, and the funded and unfunded applications did not differ in the number of strengths or weaknesses that the reviewers mentioned in their critiques. This is, um, this suggests something to me. So if the reviewer that reviews your paper has more determination about whether you get money or not. You should just keep trying, right? Because maybe next time you'll get a different reviewer that reviews it positively. Well, and I have to say, Dan, this is a big frustration among researchers. And this is something that I've experienced, Dan, um, in grants that I've put into the NIH. And that is the study section makeup changes from session to session. And of course, the, the primary reviewers you have change from time to time. Right, And so a common experience is you put your grant in, and let's say it's not funded the first time, but you get comments back. Okay, Let's say you make that top half and you're not just triaged, and you get the score and you get the comments. Well, when you put it in the second time, one of the things you have to do is you have to actually kind of show what revisions you've made. But sometimes the reviewers the second time, they have a different set of priorities, a different set of things they care about. So it's obvious you've changed everything based on all these comments you got the first time, and then things that maybe even were seen as a strength by the first set of reviewers, now the second set of reviewers, they think, are trash. And so it's that a very frustrating. frustrating process. Um, and these data, I think, really 
would not be surprising to a lot of people who you know who experienced this process from the side of a grant writer. Yeah, so the fact that this, the papers they used, the grants they used in this study, had all been funded by the second round suggests that they were all pretty good. And so it seems like perhaps the reviewer, the reviewers and the review process are fine when there is a wide range of applications. There are some ones and there are some nines. But when there are only ones and twos, your ability to discriminate between a one and a two is just not there. And so there needs to be a different process in place to sort out the, the very fine distinctions between great and pretty darn great. Yeah, and that was a conclusion that these authors stated in their paper. And, and I don't think what they were trying to say was that we should just put all the grants in a hat and draw numbers. Yeah, there, there is a discriminating potential across that wide range. Like if I submitted a grant you should probably put it in the lower half and throw it out, right? Depending on the topic. Depending on the topic, yeah. I could maybe do a, a pretty good one on certain topics. But for the people that are at the head of their fields who have been through this before, who have successfully been funded, who have maybe responded to comments on a previous submission, humans are not a, not doing a very good job distinguishing and being consistent about distinguishing those. Yeah, I think, I think you could argue there's no objective difference between the quality or potential of those those grant applications. And Dan, you know, I think what this really gets at is, is it's like we're talking about, Dan, kind of cuts to the core of real issues with subjective assessment of lots of things, whether we're talking about grants or hiring or, or whatever it is. Um, and these assessments are changing lives. They are. They are. Absolutely. So it, matter, it matters that we get it right. It does matter. And one last interesting finding from this study so the authors found that when a given reviewer, so if we talk about just you, let's say just you, Dan, are reviewing grants, and you know you would maybe identify two applications. And so application A, you gave a certain number of weaknesses. And then you rated application B, and you found that that one had more weaknesses than you found for application A. You as an individual would tend to give application B a lower score than application A. Does that make sense? Makes sense, yeah. So, so the conclusion they drew there was, conceptually, reviewers have some kind of internal standard that they do consistently apply when they're going from application to application. However, if I'm reviewing grants, and you and I are reviewing the same grant, and I give a grant three weaknesses, and you give a grant five weaknesses, that does not necessarily mean that you will give the grant a lower score than me. So the way because I... internally five weaknesses to me is a pretty good score, perhaps, because normally I give things 12 weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So from person to person, there's not a good application of this quantitative uh, scoring of a grant. Number of weaknesses. Yeah, so that's the study. <laughs> uh, really, yeah, it really has made a splash. So make there's it better. There's to think about. There's got to be some way to fix this. Well, you know, one thing I thought about was, I wonder, you know, given this last finding we talked about, that people do seem to have some sort of internal consistency where I wonder if there's a way, although this would take individuals going through the review process enough times, but using some sort of computer algorithm, I could get to know you and how you score grants, and then we could weight things. You know, Each person would have their own coefficient. Yeah, I was going to suggest the same thing. How do you calibrate the reviewers? Because each person has a different scale, and just writing in on the paper, here's how to translate your number of weaknesses into a score. People don't pay attention to it, according to the study. So how do I measure 
you on some standardized set, and then I can know something about you as a reviewer. No, I think I think a lot that, of work though. No, I think that's one option. But I think a bigger problem is you know this really subjective process. The, the way the way grant funding is set up now is it's very binary. So you either get the funding or you don't get the funding. And so we're asking researchers to spend a lot of time writing these grants to either get all the money or get none of the money. And, and that's happening through this very subjective and somewhat random at times process. Um, I was at a conference recently, and, and the speaker was Roger Chalkley, who is Senior Associate Dean for Education and Biomedical Sciences and a professor at Vanderbilt. Um, actually, we might be meeting with him, turns out. Great. Love to talk to him. Yeah. Um, so anyway, one of the things, this was not what his talk was about, but one of the things he said towards the end was an idea for making the funding structure at NIH better. And I thought it was really interesting. I had not heard this before. So his idea really got at the problem of this kind of binary way of distributing money that we have now. But instead, what we would do is have more of a tiered structure. So let's say we go through the process just like we have now, and we score all the grants, we rank them. So maybe the top 2% maybe we'll give them 100% of the money they asked for. And so a, a kind of a key point he was making was that a lot of times when researchers give their budget and they ask for money, it'd be great to get all that money, but realistically they could keep a project going on less or maybe even far less than that amount of money. Um, so let's say then you take the next 8 to 10% of the grants that were scored and you give them 80% of what they asked for. Then you take the next 10% of grants and maybe give them 70% of the money they asked for. And then maybe the next 10 to 20% give them half of what they asked for. And so the idea being, you know, you could change these percentages around, but if there's a certain pot of money that's being given out in a particular funding cycle, we fund a lot more grants at different rates than just have this yes or no system where maybe we can only fund... 10% or less of the grants coming in using this process that's somewhat random at best. Yeah, I like that because that encourages me to be creative about which parts of my grant are the most important parts and about which parts of my research maybe I can wait on or find another funding source. And so it gives that control back to the investigator and the, the research team to say, you know, in a perfect world, we would accomplish A, B, and C in our proposal. But the reality is, A is the thing that we're going to publish on soonest. So let's just start on that. And then we'll apply next year to try and cover B and C. Or maybe A will teach us something about the next five things we want to research we haven't thought of yet. I, I like the idea of, because I don't know about your lab, Josh, but we got creative when money was tight. Mm -hmm. And we found ways to make it work. And I think you could do a lot, even with a little bit less. What you can't do is continue to pay staff when you just have zero grant dollars. Yeah, no, that's right. It's a very inefficient process if you have to actually get rid of people because you go through a period of no money, and then suddenly you get another grant. Well, what do you have to do? Well, that person probably has a new job or moved on somewhere else. Then you got to start over with an untrained person. Yeah, I've got um, friends who worked in labs. The grant money dried up. They went to other jobs, but they would really like to go back to that lab. And so every grant cycle, they ask, you know, did you get it? Did you get it? And they said, well, we didn't get it this time, but as soon as we do, you can come back. But in the meantime, you've got to go on with your life. You've got to go find another job. You can't wait for that grant to get renewed. And so, yeah, it's, it's producing subpar science, um, maybe having to hire people that don't have as much experience, getting rid of people who do have experience because it's a, it's a cycle that is not predictable. Yeah. And I think another consequence of the current structure is that 
faculty are having to spend a lot of time writing grants, and it is not uncommon for faculty to say they are writing six, eight, ten grants with the hope of getting one or two funded. And so they're spending a larger and larger portion of their time in their offices writing. I actually had a meeting with a faculty member not too long ago, and I went by his office, and he was standing outside uh, in the hallway talking to one of his postdocs. And he actually asked if I could I could wait a minute while I finished up that conversation. And once our meeting started, he shared with me that he really wanted to have that conversation with his postdoc because he's been so busy writing grants, he hasn't had time to actually talk science with the people in advisor, his lab. Yeah, yeah and, and that's a that's not a good situation for trainees. Paying for that in other ways, yeah. So give us the, the take-home. What, what should we think about this and what should we do about this? So I think a take-home, and, and this comes from the paper, um, and, and they said the importance of the finding cannot be overstated. If there's a lack of consistency between different reviewers who evaluate the same application, then it is impossible to compare the evaluations of different reviewers who evaluate different applications. However, this is the situation in which members of NIH study sections typically find themselves as their task is to rate different grant applications that were evaluated by different reviewers. I am just, I'm encouraged that there are people out there, researchers out there who are taking the time to study these processes, because I think um, these processes that just can become, it's almost like the painting you have on the wall. It's always been there. You don't even notice it anymore. You know, I think that's the only way there's ever going to be these systematic changes to the process is if people actually take the time to step back and study the effectiveness and, and the pros and cons to these processes. Yeah, this has become a sacred cow study section, and um, we are not fans of sacred cows on this show. I think the the thing I want to take from this is um, this is a, this is game theory, and this is a game that we haven't really looked at to see who's winning and who's losing. But now people are looking at it and they're saying, "Well, it's not necessarily a fair game. It's not necessarily a game you win by skill." And so, can we tweak the rules, do the same measurements, and find a better system? I think we can. Yeah, I think we can too. Uh, I think the the big challenge that that's in front of us as far as this goes and, and other things, and something I've encountered, Dan, when we have things that we've always done a certain way, sometimes academic folks, and maybe all folks, it can be really unsettling and scary to think about changing these processes, even if we know they're flawed, but they're familiar. Change can be scary, but it's my hope that um, the more data that we can we can collect, people will be more open to change. All right. Well, thanks for the discussion. Everybody listening, please weigh in with your ideas. Remember, you can email us podcast at hellophd.com or find us on Twitter at hellophd. And I think we have a Facebook page somewhere. We do. Just search for Hello PhD Podcast on Facebook. We'll see you online. Now it is time for the etymology puzzle. All right, Dan, what do you have for us this week? The clue last week was a math puzzle. To solve a problem from this branch of mathematics, you must consolidate the variables on one side of the equation. I did. You, you were probably pretty good at math. I was pretty good. And as I've mentioned, I actually teach GRE prep to students from time to time. Uh, this is a softball, Dan. This is uh, algebra. You are correct. And did you know that algebra comes from Arabic? I did not know that. Uh, invented by a... Basically, the, the whole math was invented in the Arabic world. But there was a book written, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the actual Arabic title. The title of the book was The Compendium on Calculation by Restoring and Balancing by a Baghdadi mathematician. And... The word al-Jabar meant a reunion of broken parts. And so there was two two preparatory steps to solving algebraic equations, which is to basically consolidate or reunite the variables on one side. 
And so that word is in the title of his book, Algebra. And uh, later, the emphasis was on the, the first syllable, algebra. But uh, that's where the word comes from. It means to reunite. It was a word that was used for bone setting in the medieval times. So algebra meant to have your bone reset. That's really interesting. Okay, you know, I, I, I've always really enjoyed algebra. I, I like puzzles and games. And algebra always felt a little bit like a puzzle to work out for me. Very satisfying to actually solve that equation in the end. Mm-hmm. Our clue for this week is another math clue. I don't know why I'm on a math kick, but I am. Measure the width and periphery to derive this transcendental number. Read it one more time. Measure the width and periphery to d- derive this transcendental number. Remember, we're looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is the phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan. It's been, been great talking to you again this week. If you have a question or a topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button. Or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. Happy St. Paddy's Day, Dan. And to you, and we'll see everybody in a few weeks in Nashville. We'll see you then. Alexa, play the Hello PhD podcast. Okay, let me know if that worked. All right, Dan. Okay, she tried. Josh's Alexa tried. That was really creepy. Okay, Stop. Alexa started playing Adele for some reason. Hello, PH Dell. Oh, it just started playing Adele. Okay. That's so funny. Or it might, if you're lucky, it won't play our podcast. It'll play Adele instead. Either way, it works. Josh, are you ready for science in the news? I'm ready. <laughs>